the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Platka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, what the hell is going on is we've got the author of a fascinating new book with us. It's uh, Bart Gelman. He's the author of Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden, and the uh, American Surveillance State. And we're talking about the Snowden revelations. And uh, Bart Gelman was the main journalistic contributor to this story, along with Glenn Greenwald and Laura Portis, who are activist, but he was writing this for the Washington Post. And he worked with Edward Snowden and helped in the process to bring to light the largest and most, I would say, most destructive leak of classified information in American history. Right. And of course, now his argument and Snowden's argument is largest but not destructive because the American people have a right to know. So yeah. I don't want us to give any spoilers because I think this is we're, we're going to have a fascinating conversation with Bart. But you know, just to get people back into this. And by the way, such a pleasure not to be talking about COVID. Coronavirus. <laughs> Though you brought it up. I know. <laughs> I did bring it up. I had to bring coronavirus <laughs> to it. Thank <laughs> you, Danny. Yeah, because it's all we think about and talk about. But it is a pleasure not to be talking about it today. So for people to remember, there was an enormous amount of outrage at the beginning at these revelations that the National Security Agency was theoretically, supposedly listening in on Americans. Of course, it's not listening not in on Americans. It's just collecting data about who calls whom, how long those calls last, what goes on. But that metadata program became the object of enormous outrage uh, during the Obama administration. A lot of these were portrayed as excesses of the Bush administration in the prosecution of terrorists, that in fact we were implicating Americans, that we had a police state. And it was interesting because it brought together the sort of the libertarian right, you know, those people who believe that government should do much, much less and should be less in our lives, and the paranoid left, you know, the group that believes that the government is always out to get you, that the government just wants to know so it can follow you around and, and listen in on your calls with your mom, because apparently that's what the government does. And it brought together this group, and there was a lot of sympathy for Edward Snowden. You wrote a ton about this. I did. Why did we have this program? So this grew out of the uh, post 9-11 period when we realized that we had not connected the dots to stop the 9-11 attack. The Bush administration started something called the Terror Surveillance Program, which was criticized as warrantless wiretapping. And later on, that was amended to require FISA warrants from the FISA court. The person who defended this most vigorously was Barack Obama. And let me let me read you what Barack Obama said at a speech in the Justice Department justifying this program. He said, first of all, he said the program does not involve the content of calls, the names or people making the calls. Instead, it provides a record of phone numbers and the times and lengths of calls, metadata that can be queried. And when we have reasonable suspicion that a particular member is linked to a terrorist organization. So this was the purpose of, of the – I could have written those words for George W. Bush. But he said, why is this necessary? He said, the program grew out of a desire to address a gap identified after 9-11. One of the 9-11 hijackers, Khalid al-Midar, made a phone call from San Diego to a known al-Qaeda safe house in Yemen. NSA saw that call, but it could not see that the call was coming from an individual already in the United States. The telephone metadata program under Section 215 was designed 
designed to map the communications of terrorists so we can see who they are and who they may be in contact with as quickly as possible. So this cr- program was created after 9-11 because if we had been able to know that MIDAR was in the United States and making that call from San Diego, we would have been alerted to the fact that the hijackers were already in the United States. I'm not saying that would have stopped 9-11, but the fact that we didn't have that information certainly hindered us from stopping the 9-11 attacks. And we wanted to get that information in the future to make sure we didn't miss critical intelligence about an attack on the homeland. Right. So what's interesting about Gelman's new book is that, obviously, Gelman is a a journalist. He uh, agrees a lot, clearly, with Edward Snowden, but not completely. Mm -hmm. What's interesting... Says he did more good than harm. Says he did more good. Which I think is wrong. What's interesting to me is is this: you and I both spent time in the government. You in both the executive and in the Congress at DOD and at the White House and and on the Hill. Me just on the Hill. But we've all had experiences with whistleblowers, all of us. And I think that's how Edward Snowden saw himself. He saw himself as somebody who was making a call for transparency to the American people who didn't know how it was that their government was peeking in their back doors. My experience, and and you don't have to sign up for this, Mark, but my experience with whistleblowers is that while they may provide some useful information, and they often do, invariably there's something else going on there. And that risk is something that I think a lot of people who believe in, in the virtue of Edward Snowden simply do not understand. They want to take the good. Thank goodness that he told us about this thing and ignore the fact that he betrayed American allies, American supporters outside this country, people who were aiding our intelligence service, foreign journalists, foreign nationals, all of the people who make our intelligence system work and protect the American people. He wants to ignore that part. So I agree with you about whistleblowers in general, but here's why he's not a whistleblower. Take the case of the quote-unquote whistleblower in the Ukraine case with President Trump. What did he do? He went to the intelligence community inspector general and said, I'm aware I filed a whistleblower complaint. Edward Snowden went to Bart Gelman and Glenn Greenwald. That's not a whistleblower. That's a leaker. That's a crime. And who appointed Edward Snowden to decide what could hurt national security and what can't? So those were the two things. I mean, obviously, on the facts of it, I was enormously troubled. But those are the two things that stick with me is, A, that judgment call about a whistleblower. In other words, that this is obviously a person who has many other issues other than his desire to let people know that the NSA is collecting metadata. The second part of it is this, that we are in a country of rule of law. Now, you know, there are plenty of nut jobs out there who want to suggest that our country is no longer a democracy because Donald Trump is president. But let me underscore to all of you out there, Donald Trump wasn't president when this happened. This is a country of rule of law. And notwithstanding that fact, some people seem totally comfortable with this self-appointed guy and the three journalists he picked to reveal this information. I don't get that. That is the very definition of what rule of law is meant to uphold. I couldn't agree with you more. And the amount of information, Bart says that he didn't reveal most of the information he possessed. Our enemies have that information. The Russians have that information. The Chinese have that information. These people released information that had nothing to do with American civil liberties at all. How we collect information on the Russian presidency, how we collect information on the Chinese government, it's intelligence porn. It has no redeeming purpose. It has no civic virtue to it whatsoever. It's just 
titillating information that sells newspapers and that harms national security in the process. Okay, well, I can't think of a better lead up to an an interview than all of those extremely fiery adjectives, including the word titillating, which I believe that's the first time we've introduced that particular one into the podcast. Bart Gelman uh, is gracious enough to join us. He's been on and off with the Washington Post for many, many years. He's contributed to Pulitzer Prize winning stories. He's also an author. I had forgotten that he wrote Angler about Mm, Vice President Dick Cheney. And now he is the author of the book we're going to discuss today, which is Dark Mirror, the story of uh, of secret surveillance and Edward Snowden. And he knows that I'm a critic of Edward Snowden and of his reporting, and so he's a really good guy to come on the podcast and talk to us. I feel like every guest is a good guy to come on the podcast <laughs> and deal with you, Mark. Everybody knows my pain. <laughs> on to our interview. All right. Well, Bart, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you have this new book out about your collaboration with Edward Snowden. Uh, tell us why you wrote the book. So could I just rephrase that slightly? Sure. Uh, I mean, Ed Snowden was a source of mine, and I was a sure. reporter. Okay. So uh, collaboration is close enough to the word accomplice <laughs> <laughs> that, that it raises my hackles, because I was called an accomplice, uh, which has legal meaning. Uh, by top U.S. government officials. I was also called an agent. And my relationship was arm's length as a journalist. What made me write the book was that it was an enormous global story that lasted over a year and still reverberates. And I felt as though there were parts of it I was never able to tell. And I was frustrated that the newspaper format made it hard to understand these enormously complex stories. And I wanted something that had some narrative and storytelling in it that could bring the whole thing into context. So, Bart, obviously you want people to buy your book called Dark Mirror, out already, but perhaps for those who are listening who haven't had the opportunity yet, you can talk us through a little bit. First of all, a little bit about what you focus on in the book, but also maybe give us some backstory on the relationship and how it built and you know the whole story. So it's a fraught relationship with Snowden that had its ebbs and flows and periods in which he was not talking to me at all, periods in which we were spending dozens of hours in back and forth, either on the keyboard through these sort of anonymous encrypted channels or in two long visits I made to Moscow where we sat face to face. And that's one of the storylines of the book is the relationship with Snowden and how the story came to be. And another storyline is who he is. Who is Ed Snowden? How did he pull off what he pulled off? How did he manage to completely upend his relationship with the NSA, which is in the business of information dominance, which is to say protecting its secrets and stealing other people's? How did he reverse that on the world's most capable surveillance agency? There's a third storyline that has to do with investigative reporting in general, and especially national security investigative reporting. I wanted to show step-by-step, moment-by-moment, how it was done. It's a real-life spy thriller. The relationship and the the cloak-and-dagger parts of it and how all this was done, this is most of all a narrative. But this isn't your first work with Snowden. You met him back in, I guess, just before 2013. How did you first meet? Because obviously he's a, love him, hate him, think he's a hero, think he's a traitor. Everybody knows who he is. How did you end up meeting him? He turned up in my inbox in an encrypted message 
signed only by the anonymous handle Virax, which I had to look up since I never took Latin. It turns out to mean truth teller. So that was the name he assumed for himself. He said that he was a member of the intelligence community who could not identify himself as yet. He had a very important story for me, which he could not identify as yet. Uh, <laughs> but it was going to be a big deal, and it had to do with the overreach and civil liberties in the uh, intelligence community. And my first reaction, to be honest, was, oh, here we go again. Because as a national security reporter, I get a lot of spooky tips in my inbox from people who range from mentally disturbed, <laughs> just cranks or sincerely misled people or people who think they have gigantic stories, but don't. The odds of a tip coming in from out of the blue, from out of nowhere, and dropping a stupendous story on your lap, that's just not the way it works usually. Just step back a second and tell us exactly what it is, in broad brush terms, that Snowden did and Snowden found. Edward Snowden was a contractor and employee of the CIA and a contractor for the NSA. He was a system administrator for most of the time. He worked his way up from tier one to tier three, so he was the, the top level of system administrator responsible for managing the flow of classified documents, among other things, in the Kunia NSA station in Hawaii, which looks basically toward the Pacific. For another part of his career there, he was working for an organization that tried to detect and stop the incursion of foreign intelligence agencies into U.S. secrets, mainly uh, operating against China. During this period, he extracted some large quantity of documents over a period of months and saved them onto removable media, smuggled them out of his workplace at the NSA, and reached out to three journalists, myself, Laura Poitras, and Glenn Greenwald. And after a long period of time during which he sort of, in my case, vetted me to decide whether he could trust me with this material, and I vetted him to decide whether he knew what he was talking about, he handed over large caches of these documents to us with the uh, request that we take a look at them, decide what's newsworthy, and if we think it's newsworthy to publish. Tell us the main breakthrough story you had, which was about the NSA metadata program. Tell us what that revealed so, and what you found out. There were several large disclosures, big picture. One was that the NSA was collecting records of every telephone call made by every American, whether local, national, international call, if you dialed your best friend, if you dialed uh, your workplace, if you dialed a friend overseas or a colleague overseas or a conspirator overseas. There was a record of each of these calls, who called whom, when, how long they spoke. But not the actual dialogue, right? Just the but fact not, of the call. Not the words. Right. Not the words of the call. So that's called metadata. When there's a large enough quantity of information and it's subjected to big data analytic techniques, it is remarkably revealing. So there's a professor of computer science that I quoted in the book who says, just imagine a situation in which a woman gets a call from her doctor and she calls her mother. Then she calls a man who she has been talking to frequently late at night. And then she calls a reproductive services clinic. You get a very clear picture of what just happened just from the metadata. And so did you uncover any evidence that the NSA did that to Americans the, the, the point the that were not connected to a terrorist in any way? Uh, the answer is no. There is no evidence that the NSA abused this power. The question is whether Americans knew 
that they were subjected to this kind of scrutiny. They not only collected this, but they did a kind of analysis called contact chaining, which means that they prepared a kind of instant social network on every telephone number. I think the latent power of that, the assumption of that kind of power over information is something that is worth a public debate. As a citizen, I'm creeped out by it. Uh, and I, I don't want the government to do that with me. So, so uh, Jabbar, I, I completely hear yeah. what you're saying. And I think, obviously, there are many Americans who share that sentiment. Let me just try and bring what you just said into 2020. Are you equally creeped out by the data that we've been reading in the New York Times derived from cell phone information about how many people are leaving their homes to go out in the 10th week of lockdown and equally creeped out about the tracking system that's being used for the coronavirus, which basically can track the same thing? You know, you go to the drugstore, you make a call to your mom. You do. Are you equally creeped out by that? I'm curious. The answer is conditional. There are subtle questions about this that make a huge difference. The location tracking data that's being used is being released only in the aggregate. It's not only anonymous, but there's no individual tracking point that is being released. The uh, the companies that are releasing this data are simply saying the number of people in each place at each time. But, and so, you trust Apple and Verizon and AT&T and, and all those guys that they're not actually keeping the backstory on this. They're giving us what they've got. No, I don't. Uh, (laughs) That's not the case. The phone companies know at an individual level where everyone was at every time. That is also disturbing to me. I mean, people sometimes say to me, why are you talking about the NSA when Facebook knows so much about you? The answer is you could be worried about both and consider them both to be important public policy questions. I just happened to write about one of them in this book. I mean, you said this is like a spy thriller. Tell us what is the most, you know, spy thriller-esque story that you tell in the book? Bart Gelman is James Bond. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm not James Bond. I'm sort of the hapless uh, <laughs> order in, in this. I don't know. If, if James Bond had a sort of bumbling assistant, that would be me. I'm conflicted and uh, overwhelmed a lot of the time by this thing. I mean, no one's ever had, in the Washington Post newsroom, I'm pretty sure it's, it's true that no one's ever had a top secret code word classified document in their hands that was a contemporary document in near real time. We find out classified information all the time because so much is classified and it's hard to write about defense or foreign policy or intelligence gathering without straying into classified information. But having the document itself is a different story. And suddenly I was loaded down. Um, I tell the story of the moment when I realized I've got 50,000 documents classified at that level. And I don't know what to do with them. I don't know how to protect them. I I don't know how to get the right kind of advice in the right order. I was a freelance reporter at that time. I was based at the Century Foundation in New York. I was not associated with a news organization, or I was not an employee in any case. So I'm sitting there figuring out, you know, whether it's safe to back it up and how I would hide it, how I keep it from being stolen. But I mean, the, the most tense moment came when Snowden asked, that I publish not only a document, but a cryptographic signature that went along with that document. And a cryptographic signature is a tiny little file that uses math to prove that the document has been signed by someone specific and that it has not been altered since it was signed. He wanted me to post that online along with the document itself. And I asked him why, and he was dodgy about it for a while. And eventually he told me, He wanted that signature because he could use it 
when he went to various foreign embassies in Hong Kong and asked for asylum. He wanted to be able to prove that he was my source for the story as a way of saying, I'm the one who did this. I'm going to be subject to political prosecution. I want asylum. And he was asking me to play a role in his own escape from American justice. I had already agreed that I was going to keep his identity anonymous as long as he wanted. That's typical for a reporter. In order to bring information to the public, he was asking me to disclose his identity, prove his identity to a private audience of a foreign diplomat and probably foreign intelligence service in order to make his escape from American law. And that was something that, frankly, kind of freaked me out. And I had to say no. So you didn't do it? I didn't do it. Interesting. What was it that stopped you? Was it the classified nature of the key? Was it the fact that he was trying to make you complicit in his, it's not, I guess the the right word isn't defection, but certainly escape from almost certain prosecution in the United States. What part of it was where you sort of said, "Uh uh-uh, this is where I step over the line from journalism into advocacy and to use the phrase that Mark used at the outset, collaborating? It's more the latter. He was asking me to be an instrument of his action plan, the same way that I could not have assisted him in making off with the documents. If he had said, can you help me crack this code? Can you uh, ship me some hardware I need? Can you hide this encrypted disk for me? I could not have been a co-conspirator in his action as he stole the documents. The way the law works, I can receive the documents, and it's not considered for example, unlawful receipt of stolen goods. That's well-established law. So a source can tell a journalist something, and the journalist can use it, as long as the journalist doesn't participate in the hacking, for example. That's not actually true. The publication of signals intelligence is a crime. Publication of signals. The word publication appears in the law. Anyone who shares information or publishes classified signals intelligence, it's a crime. I was talking about a, a different stage of the process, but okay. you, we, could, we could go to that. We could yeah. go to publication. It is arguably a crime, uh, and most clearly in 18 U.S.C. 798. Yep. Okay. I'm sorry. Let me, on behalf of our audience, stop everybody and say 18 U.S.C. 798 says? That's part of the Espionage Act, and it's a more modern amendment to the Espionage Act long after the 1917 Act itself. And it is the only part of the act which explicitly mentions publication. That has never been tested. It has not even been charged. And you were not prosecuted, were you, Bart? I was not, but it was not out of the question. I mean, it was was a subject that I had discussed at some length with the lawyers for the Washington Post. Well, never never has there been such a disclosure of classified information in history either. So your disclosure certainly tested that law or pushed the government to test that law, possibly. Right. And a different aspect of the law, but a similar one, is being tested in the Julian Assange case because he's charged with a number of different things, but three counts of his indictment are solely on the ground of publication. I happen to think that's very dangerous. I think that because his is not about uh, signals intelligence, it's just about national defense information or in the law, in in the words of the statute, information relating to the national defense. As I say, that is something that's done every day in every newspaper that covers national and international affairs. You're saying that what Julian Assange did is the same thing that knew that the Washington Post does? I don't think what that's he even did close is, to true. In, in the three counts of the indictment that I'm talking about, the sole crime that's charged is that he published for all the world to see, it uses the word published for all the world to see, information relating to the national defense. That's the whole crime. Yeah. If he's convicted on those counts, 
that would be something that's never happened before. I want to get back to Snowden, but just, I mean, what Julian Assange did was release thousands of unredacted diplomatic cables and intelligence documents that included the names of persons throughout the world who provide, this is a quote, the quote from the indictment, included the names of persons throughout the world who provided information to U.S. government in circumstances which could reasonably expect their identities would be com- kept confidential. These sources included journalists, religious leaders, human rights advocates, political dissidents who were living in repressive regimes and reported to the United States abuses of their own government and their political conditions within those countries at great risk to their own safety. The indictment cites specific examples of sources burned in China, Iran, Iraq, Syria. We know that he uh, released the names of 100 sources in Afghanistan that the Taliban then went after. I mean, that's not what you do, is it? That's not. You're talking talking about other parts of the indictment. I'm talking about the narrow precedent that would be set by the three out of 17 or 18 counts in the indictment. And uh, I see you've come prepared. Yeah. Uh, I've been writing about this for a long time like you. (laughs) I, I, I do not endorse the totality of what Julian Assange did, not by a long shot. And Snowden does not, by the way. If Snowden wanted to release the whole cache of documents, he could have given it to WikiLeaks. Assange was angry at him that he didn't. Or he could have published it on the internet himself. He knows how to work with his computer. He wanted reporters to filter and decide what was newsworthy and what would not be unduly damaging to the national security on balance against the news value of the story. So he wanted us to do it. And and as I said, there were 50,000. I didn't write 50,000 stories or 500 stories. The great majority of what he gave me has never been published. But you know who has it? China, Russia. He took four laptops. You honestly think that Russia and China do not have every single thing that uh, Edward Snowden carried on those laptops? That's actually not what was on the laptops. He had four laptops so that he could use them for different things as part of his communication security regime. The documents themselves were on a uh, removable drive and they were encrypted. And before he went to Russia, he destroyed the encryption key. Once he gave the documents to the journalist, he no longer had possession of them. You don't think Russia and China have them? I don't think they got them from him. I wouldn't be surprised if he got them from somebody else that he gave them to. Mm, Uh, That's interesting. I, I, I can't rule out that they got them from me. I mean, I kept my copy of the documents in a 400-pound safe on a machine that had had its networking hardware stripped out so that it couldn't touch the internet, encrypted with the encryption key on a separate device, which was not kept in the same vault or the same room. The room was locked and had video camera. And nevertheless, I was an amateur playing against professionals. And I think what a big sponsored attacker is willing to spend significant resources going after an individual, it's very hard to be sure that you can protect against that. But just so I'm clear, you think that if the Russians or Chinese got it, they probably didn't get it from Snowden, but they might have gotten it from you? (laughs) I hope not. Your possession of those documents was more dangerous than Snowden's. I did every single thing that I could to prevent that, but I, I, I don't know whether they got them. Yeah, no, it's hard. To, it's hard to know, but you have to. You do have to assume. So let's let's talk a little bit about the objections to the response to your your concern and your criticism. So, I mean, you've acknowledged that no one's listening in on phone calls or reading emails, or this was metadata, which is phone numbers. Well, no, not that, not content, that, right? No, not right. That's true of the one program I talked about. So. We're talking. Uh, that's what this program uh, we're talking about right now, the metadata program. Okay, right. Yeah. yeah. So there's no so content. There was no. That. There's no content in that. So after 9/11, the criticism of the intelligence community was that they failed to connect the dots and stop the attack. And one of the reasons they failed to connect the dots is because, for example, they intercepted phone calls between Khalid Al Midhar, who was in San Diego 
and talking to a known al-Qaeda safe house in Yemen. And they didn't see that the call was coming from San Diego. So they didn't realize he was already in the United States. And so the reason we can't connect the dots, we couldn't connect the dots, is because we didn't have a field of dots. So what the metadata program was doing was creating the field of dots that we would connect. Your dot wouldn't be touched unless you were connected to a terrorist. What's wrong with that? So uh, two things that I'd say. I, I don't want to get sidetracked into a debate over 9-11, but my understanding of the 9-11 Commission's finding was that the U.S. government had, in fact, all the information that it needed in order to detect and stop the plot, that it was walled inside the U.S. government, and in particular, uh, failures of communication within and among different offices at the FBI and CIA that prevented the pieces from being assembled. Um, that, that The dots were in the hands of the U.S. government. Not the specific dots you're talking about, but enough. Well, that's enough an important dot. You're suggesting this is that was not an information problem, but a competence and transparency problem. Um, it, was, it was a flow of information problem, not the lack of having sufficient evidence in hand. So it would be worth debating whether the government should be permitted to collect all this information about us, even if it were valuable information. It happens that in this case, this program, according to the NSA itself, it turned out not to be valuable. In the early days, this telephone call records collection was described as vital and having stopped many plots. But on further reflection, on further digging, a presidentially appointed commission found that that was not the case. And it had not provided unique information, except on a very small matter on, on one or two cases. The NSA itself decided that the program was not worth continuing and does not call for its continuance right now. But the authority for it, by the way, has lapsed. It lapsed in February, and Congress is still arguing about, along with the president, are still arguing about whether to renew it. Uh, but the NSA itself is not interested in renewing it and voluntarily stopped. After stopped. after being beaten over the head and shoulders about it and having it constrained, yes. having the the metadata taken out of their hands and sent to the telephone companies, having it so restricted that it was basically unusable. Okay, Bart. So, you know, you, you said that your thinking about the metadata program is, you know, while it's an enormous amount of power and a potential source of abuse for the U.S. government and is something very much worth debating, but that you have no information. It was actually used in a malign fashion. What about other revelations? Do you have a, a feeling that those other revelations made by Snowden were evidence of malign activity on the part of the U.S. government? No, I'm pretty clear in the book. I believe uh, the U.S. government was doing its best to protect the country. Now, it's not all about terrorism. It's not even the majority of the intelligence that's collected. In fact, you would be surprised and distressed, I think, if you found out that the government was putting all its intelligence resources into terrorism. It's just the one they like to talk about the most. <laughs> right. I mean, we need to know about the flow of weapons and uh, secret alliances and foreign government intentions and negotiating positions. I mean, intelligence has a list of more than a thousand high priority topics that it's supposed to be gathering on. And they're ordered in order of preference and, you know, it's sort of an endlessly intricate bureaucratic process that synchronizes federal government's desires for information over the course of the year. I believe that the NSA was doing the job that it was given, that it was trying to follow the law, and that sometimes the scandal is what's legal. Sometimes you find a situation in which you've traveled such a distance and, and traveled it in secret that it's time for a public debate. If you reveal these programs, and the public is shocked and horrified, not the whole public, but a, enough of them, and demand change. And if you reveal programs that surprise Google and Facebook and Microsoft 
so much that they then spend tens of millions of dollars to thwart operations of their own government, which they did, then you've, you've found a subject that's worthy of debate. Let me talk about one other set of programs, because these are about content, not just about metadata. The NSA obtained content in large quantities two ways. One was through secret classified channels. It went to big companies like Google and said, give me all you've got on Danny and Mark. They did that. And I'm, I'm sure you guys are troublemakers enough. Mostly mine. Uh, that I'm being facetious because those targets were foreign targets, unless they had an individual yeah, one. We're American citizens, so you're you're not. They, they they actually didn't do what you just said because we're would, American I, citizens. I, I, and, the Danny and Mark of Europe, let's say. Okay. okay. Uh, yeah. But that's completely lawful and legitimate. Yeah. Foreign well, targets. As, as I'm saying. Yeah. They, okay. They, those targets were foreign. Uh, what I found was two things. They were doing this in very large numbers without individual warrants. They had convinced the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court that it would be okay to just approve a set of rules in which the NSA would say that it had good reason for asking for names. And then the NSA could feed hundreds of thousands of names or email addresses to these companies and say, give me what you've got on them. And this is, when you get that information, you're getting usually gigabytes of information. You're getting photos and videos and business documents and five years of email and so on. Now, here's the crucial part of it. I was able to examine 160,000 actual communications that were obtained through this method. And we did a computer-assisted analysis of it and found that for every target in that big pile of information that was gathered, there were 10 times as many bystanders who had nothing to do with the foreign intelligence that they were trying to obtain, many of whom were American and who were incompletely minimized. That is to say, their, their identities were discernible from the file. Sort uh, of like Michael Flynn. That's we got, a, that's we got a whole other podcast coming up on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but, You're but, not going to be a part of that. Mark, can I just interject and ask you a question? You just said yeah. we used computer-assisted analysis. Who's the we here? That's me and my colleagues at the Washington Post. I got the Post to hire a guy named Ashkan Sultani, who's an expert in security and privacy and a computer scientist. And we subjected, when we were dealing with a very large quantity of documents or of information, there were probably tens of thousands of pages in this particular set of files. Got it. We went through to uh, to enable a computer-assisted count of targets and, and non-targets. So you've got this great big pile. They call it incidental collection. It's when you weren't aiming for it, but you got it anyway. But incidental doesn't mean accidental, and it doesn't mean inadvertent. It doesn't mean undesired. Or and what did they do with it? That's the thing. They kept it, and they repurposed it. So for this giant bucket of content that I'm describing, they were not allowed literally to say it when they first collected it let's collect on mark and donnie because you are american citizens and you're not fair game but you could have been swept up into this bucket many many americans were and the fbi later for unrelated reasons was allowed to trawl through there and then it could say what do you have on mark what do you have on donnie because they'd already collected it without a warrant could they do that without a without, warrant? Yes, without a warrant, without even a full field investigation. They could do it at the stage before they reached preliminary investigation to decide whether to take the next step against you. The, was it used was against in Americans in, in prosecutions or in investigations? Well, that's a great question. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> it almost certainly was used to build cases, but only in the very, very few cases have they disclosed to Americans who are defendants in court that information about them was obtained through this particular set of authorities. What they usually do is known as parallel construction. They find out right. something through the intelligence gathering method, 
and then they say, we don't really want to talk about this in court. Let's now find another way of proving the same thing. Now that we know it's there, let's go look for other signs of it, and then they'll present those in court. So, you know, this country was founded by people who wanted to get away from an invasive, domineering, demanding monarch who had too much power over them. So on the one hand, your story, and I would say even even Snowden's story, resonates in that way. You never want to have, want government to have too much power. And that's been one of the things you've really been emphasizing is you know, not that you necessarily think these things in and of themselves are so terrible, but the, the American people need to know about them and deserve to debate them. Here's my question for you, though, and I want to be honest and say I don't agree with you. You said, you know, you were very honest in your book and you said, uh, I'm quoting here, I think Snowden did substantially more good than harm. He also gave material to other journalists uh, that you mentioned, Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras. These are people I consider on the absolute fringes of American politics. I wouldn't even consider them journalists. I I don't consider them journalists. These are extremists, you know, at that intersection of far left and far right that deserves to be expelled from the, you know, the public sphere. Do you worry about that at all? Do you worry about this association with people who are fanatics and and extremists? So let's unpack that. First of all, not journalists, come on. We have a very long tradition dating back to our very first days as a republic of journalism as advocacy. It wasn't always pretty, and it wasn't always uh, nuanced or restrained. It could be pretty wild. That is part of our journalistic tradition in, in the commentary. Is Assange a journalist? No. I don't think he is a journalist, and I don't care, because <laughs> you're really fixed on Assange. For many of the things that he did, I don't agree with him. I wouldn't have done them, and I don't consider them to have been journalism. For some of the charges, and this is the part that really concerns me, he is charged with actions that are identical to what a journalist does. And if they are made felonies, there's big trouble for the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and any publication you care to name that covers national security. Come back to the extremism question and and community that this is... My my politics are not Glenn's. Laura is not as uh, open about what her politics are, but they were competitors. I worked with Laura at the beginning. She introduced me to Snowden because she wanted help in understanding whether these disclosures were real. But she quickly you know, went her separate way. She became a competitor. Glenn was a competitor from the start. And they had their own way of doing things. I didn't agree with everything they published. I wouldn't have published some of those things. I wouldn't have written them the way they wrote them. But they also, did, they, they also made some, uh, I think, very important disclosures. The telephone call records metadata story that we've been talking about until now in which, you know, even Jim Clapper and Keith Alexander and President Obama all acknowledged was an important thing to be debated in public and should have been debated in public. That was a Glenn Greenwald story. He wrote it straight for The Guardian, uh, like a regular news story, and did a lot of good work along with a lot of stuff that I thought was over the top. So you justify these disclosures because you say they were important to an important debate we should have and have implications for civil liberties, right? Right. Okay. So let's let's talk about a few Snowden disclosures that came out of this that probably don't fit that characteristic. So he disclosed, for example, that the NSA developed capability to access computers not connected to the internet, creating a covert channel of radio waves that can be transmitted from tiny circuit board and USB cards inserted surreptitiously into computers, and a briefcase-sized relay station intelligence agencies can set up miles away from the target. That capability was exposed 
never has been used against American citizens. Where, 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 where? That was in the New York Times. I'm talking about Edward Snowden right now. Also, he exposed the fact that the NSA had infiltrated the computer network of Tsinghua University in Beijing, which is houses China's six major backbone networks. That activity had no implications for civil liberties. He exposed that, that the NSA had intercepted communications between then Russian President Dmitry Medvedev and had changed the way the Russian leadership signals are normally transmitted, exposing the fact that we were how we were spying on the Russian presidency. He uh, exposed the fact that the NSA had been using data from internet hubs in South and West Germany to monitor internet traffic in Syria and Mali, two hotbeds of al-Qaeda activity, which tipped off our enemies that the U.S., uh, how the U.S. was monitoring them. He exposed the NSA's Office of Tailored Access Operations, which finds ways to break into computers of the United States adversaries and intercepts delivery of electronics uh, and bugs in them. All those were focused on valid foreign intelligence targets. Mike Hayden calls that intelligence porn. There's absolutely no value to the American people of knowing that those things are happening, and yet Edward Snowden exposed all that. Do you have any you know, concern about the fact that you were cooperating with somebody who did so much damage to American national security? I was using Ed Snowden as a source, and I was publishing what I thought ought to be published. I didn't publish those stories. Some of them, we'd have to go offline and, and delve into the detail in more time than we have here. Sure. I'm not sure we're actually Snowden uh, disclosures. There were at least two other sources for some of these stories that broke in Europe that were not Snowden, and that complicates the conversation. But let me answer the big picture question. Hayden and many others have argued that while Snowden's disclosure of the PRISM program, which we talked about earlier, which has to do with getting information about content from Google and other large companies, and the metadata program, they said maybe you could call them civil liberties stories of concern to Americans. But the stuff that happens overseas with foreign targets is just the intelligence porn. And here's why I disagree. In the course of collecting information overseas, it often taps into these sort of high volume circuits at the crossroads of the internet and pulls in everything it's got from there. The law of foreign intelligence overseas is almost exclusively set by an executive order to one, two, triple three, which is the foundational document for intelligence powers. They are allowed to presume that anything they collect from an overseas collection point is a foreigner. And that used to be more or less true. But it's not true in the age of the internet, which respects no geographic boundaries. And so, for example, here's a story I wrote that I absolutely would justify. The NSA went to overseas collection points in pursuit of legitimate foreign targets, I assume. I have no reason to doubt. Broke into the private fiber optic cable that linked Google data centers overseas. And here's the problem with that. If Mark sends an email to Donnie from across the room, there's a high likelihood almost a certainty that that email is going to end up in a, if you're using Gmail, in a Google data center in Singapore or Bogota, because that's the way the distributed processing of this gigantic global machinery works. There's backups and internet communications don't take the most direct path. And so when the NSA breaks into the main trunk lines of these large internet companies overseas, it is collecting on tens and probably over 100 million Americans. It may not be aiming for them, but it knows it's getting them and it's allowed to get them. And that's something that we didn't know. That so-called incidental collection becomes such a gigantic loophole that it blows a hole in many of the civil liberties protections that we take for granted under the Fourth Amendment and under the applicable rules and regulations 
that, that give that force. So I think the issue of incidental collection and, and the way they collect overseas, which is entirely unrestrained by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court or by statute, is very much worthy of debate. The big problem here is that after 9-11, the NSA shifted the boundaries very substantially, sometimes with and sometimes without the help of the FISA court and Congress. But they shifted the, the boundaries of what intelligence is allowed to collect, and they shifted the boundaries between our government and our people. And they did so in secret. The people can't vote on every intelligence operation. Many intelligence operations have to remain secret. I get all that. But the fundamental borderlines of what the agency is allowed to do ought to be subject to public debate, and it wasn't. So you've described in your book a lot of the extent to which you've gone to protect your sources and protect the intelligence that you possessed. As a journalist, you've talked to, I'm sure, hundreds of confidential sources, including you know people in foreign countries, people who are being oppressed by their governments, who are dissidents, people who were in the intelligence community. Would you have a problem with it if like the government came in and hacked into your system and exposed all those people to people who uh, wanted to get arrest them or do something about them? Why is it okay for you to do this to the federal government, which is basically stealing the American people's intelligence information, but it wouldn't be okay for the federal government to do that to you? And why would you be upset about that? So some of the things you're describing, I did not do, exposing agents and that sort of thing. And in fact, for every story that I published, I went to the U.S. government and I said, this is the story we're planning on publish. I have questions about it. I'd like context for it. I'd like to make sure I understand it. And they got to say, we don't want you to publish this or that part of the story, or we hope you won't write the whole story at all. Mm-hmm. And there are many cases in which their requests were well-considered and well-reasoned and we did not publish. There were some cases in which we were not persuaded and we did publish. I could give you an example of that if you like. But I was not indifferent to the national security implications. That's number one. Number two, in our form of government, the government is subject to the oversight of the people. It's not the other way around. They work for us. We don't work for them. For the same reason that you don't have a privacy interest. If you're in government, you don't have a privacy interest. It's personal to you in the policies that you make and the things that you say in secret. There is a public interest in, for example, the sort of free and uninhibited debate. And so sometimes you have privileges, for example, in freedom of information laws. But in general, we have privacy against government. Government doesn't have privacy against us. Here's my wrap on this. I think, you know, this is all very thought-provoking. Reasonable people can disagree about a lot of the issues that you you raise, and no matter what, this is an extraordinarily interesting and challenging topic. For me, one of the nails in the coffin of a person like Snowden is that he, for all intents and purposes, defected to Russia. Uh, that I'll that your question, but I, I, yeah no 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 I, and and that that really is my that sort of you know that that's that is actually my last question because it changes the prism through which one has to look at these these revelations after first defecting to China and then trying to defect to Cuba yes right yes <laughs> Russia was not supposed to be the endpoint he was supposed to be in Havana somewhere warmer yeah. but anyway defections actually just simply not the accurate word. There's no evidence that he transferred his allegiance to a foreign state that was hostile to the United States. He stated publicly, for whatever it's worth, his stated reasons where he wanted to empower the American people to improve the American government, that his motives were public-minded here. 
Now, you don't have to take them at face value. I didn't take them at face value. Mm-hmm. But just as a small factual correction, his through ticket was to Ecuador. His intent was to fly, to change planes in Moscow, change planes in Havana, and wind up in Ecuador. I've seen the ticket. Got it. So Another it, friendly guy. <laughs> and, of, and of course he was of course he was not going to go to a friendly government uh he was not going to go to a place that was going to extradite him yeah. so he was looking for the least worst choice as far as he was concerned in terms of uh protection against extradition and he did not intend to be in russia he's in russia because his passport was revoked while he was on this circuitous flying route there are lots of people who surmise and say well oh of course Anybody who's in Russia is under Putin's thumb and therefore must be cooperating with Russia. A, he didn't bring the documents. Um, I know that. B, he doesn't need money from the Russian government. He's well compensated as the employee of an American uh, NGO, and he makes lots of money on the lecture circuit and his book. And he got huge contributions from Silicon Valley from people who didn't like the things that he was exposing. So he's not dependent on the state. If Russia wanted to put a squeeze on him, I'm sure it could do all kinds of nasty things. But he has had continuous access to the Internet the entire time he's been there. Um, and the entire time he was stuck in the airport, in the transit lounge, in that interim period. It's not a normal thing to do if you're trying to uh, recruit someone and put the squeeze on them to let them keep their computer and be communicating freely with the outside world every day. And let me give you one other piece of circumstantial evidence as a thing to put into the mix. I went to visit Snowden in Moscow twice. Now, I had no intention of carrying classified information with me uh, on that trip. I didn't carry anything. I did what you described earlier, Mark. I brought an empty computer and an empty phone and so on. But in the early preparation for that story, as we were talking about my visit, Snowden said to me, listen, whatever you do, do not bring any of the documents with you. You have to assume that they'll be able to take anything that you, you bring. Now, if he was working for the Russian government, if he had their interests at heart, surely he would have said, Listen, you should bring the stuff. I, I, I'm going to show you some secrets you never imagined that are in there uh, that you probably haven't found. And I've got more to talk about with you. He would never have said, don't bring anything you don't want the Russian government to get. That just wouldn't make sense. There's a lot more than that I don't have, that I don't have time to get into. But there's lots of circumstantial evidence that persuades me that his profile doesn't fit a plausible interpretation of being a spy. Well, Bart, you've been very generous with your time. And also, I know you know that I've been a very big critic of Snowden's and of the publication of these things. So I'm, I really appreciate personally that you were game to come on the podcast and have a, uh, have a friendly, if tough, debate on some of these issues. Well, thank you for having me. I, I, I really believe people ought to talk to each other and not just... Uh, I agree with you 100%. I think it's great that you came on and that we had this discussion. And I think our listeners learned a lot. And well, I certainly did. Thanks for having me. Thanks thank a you. ton, Bart. I got to say, okay, um, maybe he did want to go to Ecuador via Hong Kong, Moscow, and Havana. Okay. Well, yeah. Bart's seen the ticket. I believe it. Okay. But there's a theme here. The other people who Snowden leaked to are people, in particular Glenn Greenwald, who find themselves often in sympathy with the perspective of the Putin government who find themselves often arguing for Russia's side on a whole variety of issues. And the big tell for me that this is about their sympathy with Russia is the fact that they defended Donald Trump <laughs> when people accused him of being a Russian agent, right? In, Which he wasn't. 
Duh. I mean, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but I mean, you make that out like that's the you know like even the even the blind squirrel finds an acorn once in a while. I mean, they, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> for, for me that was were... just that was the giveaway because you know Snowden is a, it is a complex debate for a lot of people because of the libertarian strains because there was this feeling that the U.S. government had amassed too much power, but on the Russia side. The fact that people who otherwise find themselves on the far left, and I don't include Bart in this, by the way, find themselves on the far left were out there defending Donald Trump against accusations that he was, you know, doing something illicit with Putin and that Putin is not, not, not such a bad guy anyway, is the giveaway to me that, in fact, he may have bought tickets on the way to Havana and he may have wanted to go via Hong Kong, but in fact, he, he is perfectly comfortable working for and aiding the Russians. I'm, I'm keeping Donald Trump out of this because I think that the... Because you love the, him. No, because I think the <laughs> Russia collusion conspiracy theory that our country went through and actually took seriously, I think that no president has been treated more unfairly in terms of being investigated for well, something Glenn, Glenn, never Glenn did. Greenwald agrees with you. Well, Glenn, yeah, like I said, even the blind hog finds an acorn once in a while. But look, the reality is that there's a reason Edward Snowden is in Russia and it's not because he's a proud American patriot. I'm sorry. Bart makes the point that, well, if you're leaking on the American government, you have to go to countries that are not friendly. Well, you know, sorry. No, you don't. I mean, if you're if you're so brave and you're so uh, that, why don't you why don't you leak that information and then stand up and go in court and defend yourself? Why don't you uh, go to the inspector general and, and re- reveal it through proper, proper sources? Why don't you go to the senator House intelligence committees and do that? This guy is a criminal. And he's on the run. He's a criminal and, and he's a traitor. And he's a traitor. And he, he is hiding out just like so many defectors have, you know, the Kim Philbys of the world and, and all of the uh, traitors who, uh, who went over to Moscow during the Cold War. He's just the post-Cold War version of that. I, one of the things that really grosses me out is the notion that, that Edward Snowden doesn't need money, that he's being supported by people in Silicon Valley. Bart said that and we didn't really talk about it. But who the hell is giving Edward Snowden money living in Russia. Really? Yeah, it's appalling. I mean, again, you know, I, I think what you said is right. And I know you don't like me bringing Donald Trump, beloved Donald Trump into this. But, you know, the whistleblower from the agency on the Ukraine call is in this country. Yeah. He hasn't defected anywhere. He yeah. hasn't moved anywhere, to use a less loaded term. The other thing that I will say is that the notion that the Russians don't have this. Mike Hayden had a great quote uh, about this. And you guys know that we talk about Mike Hayden often, very, very fond of the former head of the NSA, former director of the CIA, and, and a wonderful man. Who manages this program. And was a wonderful man. Than Snowden than, uh, but he said, he said, all I've got to say is that if the Russians and the Chinese don't have this, and I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> shame on them. That's exactly right. <laughs> because because this is a treasure trove for them. The idea that somehow sticking stuff in a safe keeps it safe, that keeping the key elsewhere keeps it safe. I'm sorry, once these documents are out in the open, it's fair game. Yep. And I'm struck by the fact that uh, Bart acknowledged that they may not have gotten them from Stone, they might have gotten them from him. The reality is he described for us how he's sitting at the Washington Post headquarters in a locked room with a safe with tens of thousands of pages of the most highly classified information in the U.S. government. He shouldn't have that information. That shouldn't be sitting in in the hands of a of a, of a private also given citizen. To two, it was and, also and, given to two other quote unquote journalists. I'm sorry. 
they didn't share it with anybody. This guy whose honor we already know it does not exist didn't give it to anybody besides three, these three guys. What? And, and, and we have reason to believe that. Why? Because he's not a liar? Because he's not a thief? Because he's not a traitor? I'm sorry, what? You nope, know, that's exactly right. It, it, it and strains again, credulity. And so much of the stuff that he revealed, you know, the, the, the NSA program got a lot of attention, but so much of the stuff he revealed was revealing tradecraft, how the United States government spies on our adversaries, on Russia, on China, on terrorists. I thought you uh, made that you know, case very well I, on the I, podcast. I, I, it just, uh, this guy is not a hero. He's a criminal. Um, and he belongs behind bars. And I hope we get the chance to prosecute him. I hope we extradite Julian Assange into this country and prosecute him too, because we need to put a price on this kind of uh, this kind of leaking. Well said. So agree, disagree, just want to learn more. It is certainly a book well worth reading. Bart Gelman is, if nothing else, as a lifelong journalist and I read about his exploits as a journalist in high school To uh, <laughs> uh, when I was looking up his bio. A lifelong journalist, a fine writer, and always worth a read, and a absolutely game because he was willing to come on a show with two people who disagree with him. And, of course, Mark is really mean about these things. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys, for being with us. Look forward to seeing you soon. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell@ai.org, Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.